are listening to audio from Emmanuel Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more resources like this one, go to EmmanuelBirmingham.com. Before we uh, jump into our text this morning, um, I do want to speak for a couple of minutes uh, into the overturning of Roe v. Wade by the Supreme Court a couple of weeks ago, I guess just a little over a week ago. Um, Obviously, with the leak happening, you know, a little while ago, uh, there was potential that this ruling was coming down the pipe. And now we've obviously seen that this has proved true and that Roe v. Wade has officially been overturned um, in our government. Now, I was hoping uh, because people been given a little heads up that this was potentially coming, that maybe the reactions would have been a little more tempered, um, that words were chosen a little more carefully, that arguments for or against could have been a little more nuanced. I was hoping that mutual respect could have been given in the dialogue between the two groups in this matter, but obviously I was extremely naive. <laughs> As the rhetoric being pumped into our ears and into our minds on a daily basis has been nothing but hate-filled in a variety of ways, fear-inducing, uh, nothing has been done to contribute to any kind of reasoned, calm dialogue among people. And I decided to wait a week, one, because it's just been so crazy, uh, Two, to pray for wisdom and just how to address this with you. And then three, uh, that hopefully we as a church could allow ourselves and our emotions to subside just a little bit so that we could remind ourselves that we are Christians before we are men and women, that we are Christians before we are Americans, that we are Christians before we are Republicans or Democrats or anything in between. So I want to give you just a couple of thoughts um, that you may or may not agree with, Um, but I pray that these words are rooted in the scriptures, that these words are filled with compassion, and that even if we disagree, that our beliefs and identities will be shaped by the timeless words of the Bible and not by any cultural mantras or milus or narratives that are out there right now on either side. And at the risk of of stepping into all kinds of minds here (laughs) over the next few minutes, um, as your pastor, as your pastor, I felt it was necessary to speak into these things. As six days out of the week, you're hearing one thing. You need to hear something else at least one day of the week. And so I pray by God's grace I'm able to do that over the next few minutes. So first, just a couple of thoughts here first. As Christians, we promote life. We promote life from the baby in the womb all the way to the elderly in hospice. Because we're made in the image of God, because he made us in his image and in his likeness, every human being has dignity and value and worth simply because we are made by an eternally dignified, valuable, and worthy God. And because we promote and love life, and see all men and women as made in the image of God, we as a church must be more radical in our love, not only towards unborn babies, but also towards scared moms and dads that may now not know what to do. If we say we love life, we need to do more than simply tell young women not to abort babies without giving them some kind of alternative to that. 
We must continue to love adoption. We must continue to be radical givers to those in need to buy groceries or medical care or whatever they need in our communities. We must continue to oppose anything in this world that robs people of flourishing and life, not simply abortion. And as we choose to oppose something, we must also be, be ready to propose something better, a better alternative, even if it's at great cost to ourselves. Second, not only do we promote life as the people of God, but we must remember, as I said before, that we are Christians even before we're Americans. You know, we live in a great country. Praise God. Praise God for all the freedoms and liberties we have in our country. I mean, the freedoms and liberties America has provided far surpass really any civilization in the history of the world. It's an amazing place to live. At the same time, American freedom and Christian freedom sometimes look totally different. American freedom tells you that you are an autonomous self, that you and you only have the rights to say what to do with your money and your families and your actions and, yes, even your bodies. But for the Christian, freedom in Christ is not liberty to do as you will with what you possess. You know, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 6 that we are not our own, that we were bought with a price. And he takes that and says, therefore, glorify God in your bodies. So as Christians, we are free now. Christian freedom is the freedom to lay down our freedoms for the good of one another. We're no longer slaves to anything, but we're slaves to righteousness for the good of the glory of God and one another. We are not our own, church. We are not our own. We've been bought with the precious blood of Christ on the cross. Therefore, we have to glorify God in all ways, even if that means restricting our freedoms for the good of other people. Nothing we have is our own. Nothing we have is our own. So how are we stewarding what God has given to us as believers? So that's the second thing. Third thing, regardless of how you view this decision by the Supreme Court, as believers, we don't engage with one another like the world engages with one another. We don't tear down. We don't gossip. We don't slander. We don't let our rhetoric be hate-filled and vindictive regardless of what side you're on but our speech is to be seasoned with salt. We reason with one another with the foundation and roots of our reasoning being the love of Christ we have towards one another. You know, we are brothers and sisters in Christ, church. Before anything else, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. And if Christ-exalting dialogue cannot happen among the redeemed, it's not going to happen anywhere. So let us disagree with grace, let us disagree with kindness. You can be passionate. That's okay. You can be passionate. But may we not let our passion be grounds for hate and resentment towards other people. Let us come to the table first and foremost, seeking to understand one another before we seek to be understood. It's not about us. It's about the other person. And may we together seek truth. We love truth. The people of God love truth. But the truth ultimately is rooted in the scriptures. It's not rooted in personal autonomy. It's not rooted in personal freedom. But it's rooted in the freedom Christ gives. The freedom he gives to us in him. 
So may we desire the glory of God and the good of each other, even as we dialogue about this issue. And then lastly, if you are currently here and abortion is a part of your story, I am so glad you're here. We want to be a community that extends grace and mercy, the grace and mercy of God in Christ towards you. There is nothing anyone can do in this church to earn a scarlet letter. Scarlet letters were nailed to the cross of Jesus Christ and covered in scarlet blood to eliminate those letters. I pray that you feel the forgiveness and the grace and the kindness and the compassion of Jesus Christ, even among the people of God. We should extend that to one another. And may we walk, regardless of what our pasts look like, may we walk in the newness of life that's provided to us through the Holy Spirit. So let's pray together. Let's pray together as we move into our sermon for this morning. And if you would like to talk more about these things, call me, text me, let's grab a cup of coffee. Let's hang out. Let's grab lunch. Let's dialogue about these things. Under point number three, that it be reasoned and filled with grace, all right? But let's talk about these things. My phone is always available to you. My, my time is always available to you. So let's pray together, and then we'll move into our sermon. Father, I do thank you for the people of God. And I thank you, Lord, that you've given us all new identities in Christ Jesus. But sometimes we forget who we are. I forget who I am. Remind us how we are to act towards one another as your people. Remind us that there are times to celebrate and there are also times to grieve. That we are a people who come to the table, again, rooted in the foundation of our dialogue, being Christ Jesus himself. May we have the mindset of, of the Lord our God in Isaiah chapter 1, where he appeals to the Israelite people to come and let us reason together. Let's reason together. Let's talk. And we, may we always look back to the timeless words of the scriptures as our guide, as what we stand upon. And may you teach us, O oh God, as we are learning, may you teach us by the Holy Spirit how to be better manifestations of the people that you've called us to be. We love you, Lord. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if I haven't made you mad already or you've decided not that you're going to leave, I have another chance right now because I'm preaching on giving. <laughs> so uh, I have another opportunity to offend you. That's okay. Um, <clears throat> but again, listen, if nothing we have is our own, okay, if nothing we have is our own, as I said before, if everything we possess is a gift of God's grace to be used for his purposes, then obviously money falls into that category, Right? In Matthew 6, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is preaching and he begins addressing money and giving at the very beginning of Matthew 6. And he starts with the assumption that his people will be givers. He doesn't say, hey, you need to start giving. He's assuming people are giving, right? And then he goes on and he starts talking a little bit about treasure. And he doesn't deny that treasure is a good motivator. He doesn't say, don't let treasure be a desire of yours. But rather... He corrects our view of what treasure is, right? The treasure we're to accumulate are not treasures on this earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but we're actively storing up treasure in heaven where it's eternal, 
You know, Jesus doesn't say don't store up treasure, but rather he puts before us the question, well, what is your treasure? Is it comfort or security or stuff here on the earth that you can't take with you? Or is it something greater? Is it something better? And then he makes a statement in Matthew 6, 24. I know this isn't a sermon on Matthew 6, but it's a good kind of entry into our text. He says, no one can serve two masters. For he'll either hate the one and love the other, he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. You know, Jesus could have put anything in that block there. Man can't serve both God and success. Man can't serve both God and fame. Man can't serve both God and sex. Man can't serve both God and relationships. Man can't serve both God and family. But he chose money. He chose money. Of all the things he could have picked, he chose money. He pitted money against God rather than any other vice or good thing that could ensnare us as people. And the reason is because he knows us. He knows our hearts. He knows our tendencies as human beings to trust in things that we can see and we can hear and we can accumulate rather than, when it, rather than trusting God himself, the giver of all these things. You know, we tend to get super defensive when it comes to our money, thinking in our minds that somehow independent of God, I earned all these things for myself, that somehow I was able to give myself the skills and the abilities to work, which a lot of people in our world cannot work. And we think that money is our own and ours alone, that nobody can tell me what to do with my stuff, with my money. It's mine. It's mine. It's mine. It's true in my life, I'm being honest with you. I mean, I know my heart. I've seen this manifest itself in a variety of ways in my life. I mean, even now, the God of false security I place in my possessions, I mean, the, the Holy Spirit has to smash that on a regular basis. I mean, how often have I had to repent of the, the trust I've put in money and stuff when I feel stress and anxiety start to boil up in my heart? I mean, it happens all the time. And the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 9, he gives us a remedy for our money worship. And his remedy seems a little counterintuitive. You know, one would think to not trust in money to alleviate that anxiety and that worry and that fear that money can sometimes produce about not having enough. Think, you, think that, you think the answer would be to accumulate more and more and more until the worry and the anxiety and the stress go away. If I just had enough, then this stuff just wouldn't happen. I wouldn't feel this way. But rather, Paul's remedy is the exact opposite. He says in 2 Corinthians 9 that the key to happiness with our finances, with our money, is to be a happy giver. He says that God delights in happy givers, for he himself is a happy giver. If you want to be satisfied, regardless of how much money or wealth you have or don't have, give it away. That's what he's saying. Not begrudgingly, but cheerfully. Happily. So verses 1 through 5 help us to establish kind of the context of what's going here in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. And I want us to read it again, just to kind of know where we're at here. So verse 1 of chapter 9. Now it's superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints... Surprised I got that word right. I messed it up a million times practicing this sermon, but I got it right. I'm not going back to it. For I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. 
But I'm sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready, as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you're not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead of you and arrange in advance for the gift you've promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. So in chapters 8 and 9, we didn't read 8, but in chapters 8 and 9, they go hand in hand. Paul is seeking to gather up an offering from churches in Asia to take with him to the church in Jerusalem. This church in Jerusalem was walking through a a hard time, a lot of trials and tribulations and financial difficulties. And so throughout chapter 8 of 2 Corinthians, Paul has been filling the Corinthians in on the generosity of the church of Macedonia, where he's currently at when he writes this letter. And he says that out of the poverty of the Macedonians, they have contributed freely and generously. So out of their poverty, they gave. And then the Corinthians, who lived in a very prosperous and thriving metropolis in ancient Greece, they'd already communicated to Paul their intentions and their readiness and willingness to also contribute towards this offering. And Paul's been boasting about the Corinthians' generosity to the Macedonians. And it was this picture of mutual encouragement. The Corinthians are encouraged by the Macedonians contributing out of their poverty. The Macedonians are encouraged the generosity of the Corinthians giving out of their wealth. They're building up one another. It's a mutual building up, mutual edification for the sake of the body. So Paul, at the end of chapter 8 and the beginning of chapter 9, he's decided to send on ahead of him Titus along with two other believers. And he's sending them on to get this offering ready because Paul's coming in behind them. And everything they're going to get together, hopefully by the time Paul gets there, will be in order. There won't be any arms that need to be you know, twisted to give, right? That's not a cheerful giver. You don't want to twist any arms to give, but that the boasting of Paul to the Macedonians would prove true about the Corinthians. That he wouldn't be embarrassed for misplaced boasting. You know, it's like when we vouch for someone in our own lives, right? You know, if I vouch for someone's character or their work ethic or their aptitude for a certain something... I'm hoping they deliver on what I've said about them, right? Because in a way, my reputation to vouch for someone's character is now tied, their reputation is now tied to my reputation, right? If I talk a big game about somebody and they can't deliver on what I talk about, I'm embarrassed because I completely misassess their ability to live up to the hype. And the person that asks me for a recommendation is less likely to ask me for a recommendation in the future. So that's what's happening here, right? So in the first five verses, Paul is reminding the church that a delegation is coming to get things in order, to get things ready, and he's following right behind him. And then Paul moves into some principles and benefits to giving. Because Paul knows human nature, and since human nature has not changed since the beginning of time, and we live in a post-Genesis 3 world now, the tendency of our hearts is to put trust in things that cannot deliver. It's to hold on to fading possessions as a source of security and identity. That the natural inclination of the human heart is towards self, not towards selflessness, but towards self. Our eyes are fixed on us. We need the Lord to lift our heads to be fixed upon Him and others. So he begins, Paul begins to lay out for them the kind of giving that God commends. And the benefits to cheerful generosity for those who are in Christ Jesus. So over the next few minutes, I'm going to unpack these principles and then also these benefits. So 
three principles in the first nine, the next nine verses here in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. The first one is this. The more you give, the more you receive. The more you give, the more you receive. Let's read verse 6, 2 Corinthians chapter 9. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. You know, Paul reverts to a farming metaphor to begin his discussion on giving. I'm not a farmer. I've never been around farmers. I have very limited knowledge of farming. But it doesn't take a farming genius to figure out what he's talking about. If you plant a little, you're going to reap a little. If you plant a lot, you're going to reap a lot, right? It's very, very easy uh, to understand. Pretty simple. And it's not hard in our culture to come across a verse like this in our experience as believers and in our minds conjure up all kinds of prosperity gospel preachers we see on like late night TV. If you sow your seed of $10, brother and sister, you will reap a hundredfold, right? So give your seed, plant your seed, sow your seed, and the harvest will come, right? And we've all heard that nonsense. Verses like this have been taken out of context to serve self-serving men and women who call themselves pastors. And they twist these verses into manipulating people where people that are poor become poorer while they become richer. But the key to understanding this verse, you can't take verses like this and just pull them out without giving any idea to the context of what's going on. That's how prosperity gospels make their living. But what happens, what we need to understand is that the key to understanding this verse is actually in what follows in this text. And what follows in this text is Paul is not teaching the Corinthian church and us today wise investment strategies to make more material wealth. It's not what he's doing. But he's teaching us how to sow material things in order to reap spiritual benefits. Which leads to the second principle of giving here. Second principle. The heart of the giver matters more than the amount of the gift. The heart of the giver matters more than the amount of the gift. Verse 7. Let's read it again. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Paul's quoting Deuteronomy 15.10 in the Old Testament here. And that word for cheerful here in the Greek, it carries this, this impression that as one is giving, he or she is laughing as they're giving. It's like this exhilaration, this hilarity in your giving. The giving God loves is not done by means of arm twisting. It's not done by means of inducing guilt. It's, the giving, it's giving what the Lord has laid upon your heart, trusting him to take what you are sowing, so to speak, and multiply it in the lives of other people while he multiplies joy and obedience in us. You know, I fall into the camp, just to show you my hand a little bit, I fall into the camp, and again, we can talk about this too, um, that uh, tithing is not mandated in the New Testament. That uh, By tithing, what I mean by that is uh, giving a settled 10% of your income to the local church, like 10%, like hardline 10%. Now, if you want to use a 10% as a principle for your family and what you give, man, that's totally fine. Totally fine. But tithing 10% is no longer law for us as believers in Christ in the new covenant. There are a lot of theological reasons why I believe that that I don't have time to go into this morning. We can have that conversation. And honestly, if we're to do a careful analysis of the Old Testament and actually give what was mandated in the Old Testament, we'd actually be tithing more like 20%. So maybe I should be a law keeper in this and say 20% actually, not 10 
So our math's off anyway, but it doesn't matter. Um, I do not believe a mandatory tithe of 10% is taught in the New Testament. But at the same time, being a generous giver is clearly taught in the New Testament. You know, as we're studying this text this morning, uh, it's the heart of the giver that matters most, not the amount given. You could be the most faithful 10% tither in the world. But every time you give, if your heart of giving is rooted in have-tos and ought-tos, the Lord would rather have you give less with a cheerful heart than more with a begrudging heart. Because this is the heart of our God, right? God is a cheerful giver. He didn't begrudgingly send us Christ. He did it joyfully, knowing that through faith in Christ, we will be able to experience the heart of our generous, benevolent Father for all of eternity. I say this all the time, but we give because God is a giver and we are his people. That's why we give. And we give out of joy because God gave out of joy. Third principle. God provides all we need to give generously. Verses 8 through 10, let's read it again. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he's distributed freely, he's given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. God provides all we need to give. And a reluctance to give generously, to sow lavishly, to use the language here, is a reluctance to trust that God is able to to provide what we need to live. Now, what we need and what we think we need are often two different things, right? I mean, we live in the 21st century, we live in 21st century America, where I think I need a lot more than what I actually need to survive. I'm learning this the hard way through our Airbnb right now. That's another story for another day. Um, but this is the heart of the Apostle Paul coming through right here in this text. You know, one of the most quoted verses in all the Bible, yet one of the most misapplied verses in all the scriptures, is Philippians 4.13, right? I mean, if you know it, if you know it, say it, all right? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, all things through him who gives me strength. Yes, good job. Well done. I remember in high school throwing this prayer up to God uh, often uh, before not studying for a big test. Like, Lord, I didn't study. I spent most of my nights playing PlayStation, um, but I trust you. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Help me not to bomb this test, right? I mean, I had a friend, actually had a friend too that played baseball, and he had this written underneath the cap, his cap, baseball hat. So he's thinking like, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. I'm going to hit a home run. Um, But Philippians 4.13 rests on the back end of a letter Paul's writing from prison, all right? And it rests in the middle of a bunch of verses where Paul is talking about being content in all situations. I'm going to read it. I'm going to read you the context of Philippians 4 uh, here, starting in verse 10. It'll be on the screen for you. Paul's writing, he says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you've revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I'm to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. 
I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I can be in times of prosperity. I can be in times of plenty or poverty. I can be free, proclaiming the name of Christ, or a prisoner because I proclaimed the name of Christ. In whatever situation God has me in, I will be content, for I can do all things through him who strengthens me. The Lord is our sustainer. He is our supplier. He is the one who supplies everything we need to sow in times of plenty and in times of want. Martin Luther said, I've had many things in my hands that I lost. The things that I placed in the hands of God I still possess. When we sow out of our poverty or wealth, we are trusting God to provide what we need. So as we're sowing, cheerfully, generously, what are we harvesting? What are we reaping? What are we bringing up from the ground? Well, real quickly, let me give you five benefits to cheerful giving in our text. Five benefits to cheerful giving. First, you'll be rich spiritually. <laughs> it's funny, y'all looking down. I saw a couple of y'all look up when I said that. Like, what? Um, you'll be rich spiritually. All right? So let's, we read verses 8 through 10. We're not going to reread those, but particularly look at verse 10. Let's reread that one. Verse 10. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. As we are sowing, as we are giving, God is increasing two things. One, he increases our seed for sowing. You see it there? Increases our seed for sowing. Now, as we said above, give a caveat. There is not a one-to-one correlation between your generous giving and God giving you more wealth, all right? It's not it. That is a false gospel completely devoid of the scriptures. It's not there, okay? And the fact that most Christ followers, uh, this is actually you know, undercut by reality in the fact that most Christ followers live in impoverished areas of our world, right? So if they are following Jesus wholeheartedly and giving out of their poverty, if this theology proved true prosperity gospel, they would all be rich. But it doesn't, right? Falls apart. But it's, so it's not a one-to-one. But at the same time, at the same time, we do know from the teachings of Jesus that those who are faithful and little are oftentimes entrusted with more, right? So God may see fit to generously bless you when you give. That's not the goal of your giving. You don't give to get more stuff. But at the same time, if he does choose to bless you with more, you have a greater responsibility with that more. It's not just to spend on yourself, focus on yourself, but God, as you are sowing, may choose to give you more seed. That's what verse 10 says. For sowing. But to sow more seed, to give more away, you're trusting the Lord of the harvest to increase that crop for the good of other people. So firstly, maybe he might give you more seed for sowing. But secondly, secondly, verse 10 says you'll also reap a harvest of righteousness. A harvest of righteousness. God will increase our Christ-likeness as we give. You know, it's hard to believe those of us who are stingy with our money truly understand the gospel. 
I'm not saying you won't battle trusting the Lord with our money. I just told you, I do it all the time. I'm not saying we won't fight anxiety and stress that money can sometimes create in us. I'm not saying that we won't fall or fail every, time, uh, every so often in, our, in how we give or when we give or when we choose to give. But a lack of giving demonstrates a lack of fully understanding a gospel rooted in giving. God gave His Son. Christ gave His life. They both have given us the Holy Spirit. The only thing God withholds from those of us who are in Christ, who believe the gospel, is His wrath. And that's only because he gave it to his son. God is a giver. You know, each week at the end of the service, we uh, read a benediction over us. And, and many of you hold your hands out like this to receive the, the blessings and the promises of God from his word. This is a physical sign of, of receiving that which is being prayed over you. And how often when it comes to our giving, our hands curl up into balls. We are ready to receive from the Lord, but we're not ready to give to the Lord. May we come to the table every single time with our finances, with our material wealth, and say, this is my posture. I receive from you, but also take what is rightfully yours. It's hard, but the Spirit of God can produce that in us. So that's the first benefit of giving, first benefit of giving. Second, we're running out of time. Second, we reap harvest of thanksgiving. Harvest of thanksgiving. Verses 11 and 12. You'll be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. When we give, we become more grateful people. We thank God for what we've received from Him, and we demonstrate that thankfulness by blessing other people. Generous giving is rooted in the realization that nothing we have is our own. We've said this before, that God is the owner and we are the managers. You want to use an antiquated word? We are stewards, managers of that which is not our own, right? We don't own our money. We don't own our houses. We don't own our cars. We don't even own our children. We are stewards of all of those things for the glory of God and for the good of one another. And as we give and loosen our grip on those things that we think are our own, it produces in us joy and thanksgiving for the provision the Lord has given to us. And His provision is then given to other people. We are full of thanksgiving to God. We thank God for what He's given us, and we show that by giving it to other people so that they can now be thankful as well. Third, God's glorified. Pretty straightforward. God is glorified in our generosity. Verse 13. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. When others are provided for through our generosity, they see that we actually believe what we say we believe. They see that we worship a God who owns cattle on a thousand hills. That he has the ability and the power to provide for us all that we need because he owns it all. And that we actually, they see that we actually believe that as a people. When we let loose of 
those material things he's given us and trust God to provide what we have just let loose of, God is glorified. He is seen as enough. He is seen as the provision, the provider for us. You know, the Lord doesn't only test us during times of affliction and hardship. Oftentimes, He also tests us through times of prosperity, when things are going well for us. Do we only rely on Him when we need something from Him? When we're in a dire situation, do we only then offer up prayers to God when we need Him to give us something? Or do we also rely on Him when we have His material blessing? and seek to gain wisdom and His will to show us how to give that away for His glory. Has the Lord been materially gracious with you, church? If so, when's the last time you thought about Him? When's the last time you prayed to Him, thanked Him for what He'd given you? Uh, Johnny Cash, I read a, his autobiography. I love Johnny Cash. I love old country music. Right, just old country music. Um, I just like a lot of old things. Uh, new country music, you can get out of here. Um, but, but old country music, I love Johnny Cash. I read his autobiography not too long ago, and, and he said that when he would wake up in the morning, he would roll out of bed, he would drop to his knees, and he would say, thank you, Lord. Thank you. God gave him that day, and his first thought was to thank God for giving him that day. We need to be more like Johnny Cash. I know I do. <laughs> Not in all ways, just in some ways. Fourth, fourth. God produces a greater longing for the good of others. God produces in us a greater longing for the good of others. Verse 14. Actually, let's back up to 13 again. Let's read 13 and 14. By their approval of this service, it will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all the others. 14. While they long for you and pray for you, because of the surpassing, lost in place, surpassing grace of God upon you. Giving not only produces thanksgiving, but it also produces prayers. We pray for the recipients of our gifts, and they in turn pray for us when they receive them. You know, we long for their good as being demonstrated in our giving, and they long for our good as being demonstrated by their prayers. If prayer is all we ever receive back from our giving, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. I'll take prayer all day over money, material wealth, anything like that at all. Even a thank you. If you're praying for me, man, that's an amazing thing. Amazing thing. And then fifth, fifth, as we kind of land the plane here. Giving unites the global Christian community. Giving unites the global Christian community. This is more implicit than explicit, but verse 15, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. The thing that connects us all together as Christ's global church is not the money we give. It's not the resources we provide out of our abundance. It's not the prayers we pray, not even the prayers we pray for one another. But what ultimately unites us is not anything we give at all, but it's everything that God has given to us in Jesus this inexpressible gift of God's grace and salvation found in Christ. And this transcends all things. You know, any gift we give is far inferior to God's gift to us. And anything we give, he first gave us to give in the beginning, right? 
And our gratitude for the gospel expressed through our giving shows us that we value the treasure of Christ more than any other treasure this world affords. May Christ be our treasure. May He be the pearl of great price worth selling everything in order to attain. And may we give our little treasures to glorify our great treasure. For where our treasure is, there our hearts will be also. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, I thank you that you are a giver. If you had not first given to us, if you had not first loved us, if you had not first demonstrated kindness and mercy to us, we would all be hopeless and lost, heading for an eternity apart from you. But God, your heart is one of generosity. Your heart is one of charity and joy. You didn't look at us and go, what a bunch of pathetic people. I guess I'll send my son. But you generously and cheerfully gave us Christ Jesus. And he cheerfully and graciously and generously came. That he cheerfully and generously gave his life on the cross for us. And that both of you have now, have now cheerfully and generously given us the Holy Spirit to stir up our affections for you, to remind us of the truths of the gospel, to remind us when we think that we own things in our lives, that it's not ours, but it's yours. Remind us every day that we are managers of those things you've given to us and help us to rejoice and be thankful, not taking anything for granted, but using what you have given us to bless other people, that you may be glorified in our church, in our community, in the world. We love you, Lord. We thank you for your mercy and your grace that even when we fail to give, you still give to us. Thank you, Lord. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. This has been a sermon from Emmanuel Church. To learn more about Emmanuel or to give, go to Emmanuel with an I, Birmingham.com. You can also follow us on Facebook or Instagram at Emmanuel Birmingham.